Well, good morning. Whoa. We're awake. So my name is Loud. My name is Andy Peterman. I am a recovering speed addict. It has been four years since my last speeding ticket. It's actually, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, with help like that, I think I can make it another four years. Um, so my driving record, am I on here? That's loud. I'll just stay. I actually turned myself on too, like I caught it. Hey, there we go, I hear me. Anyways, um, so I've shared it before. My driving record is one with a really checkered past. Uh, for the first 12 years of being able to drive, I had accrued over 23 times being pulled over, but I had a really good record going. Um, I only got four tickets. So it was like, I, I don't know what it was. It got to a point where I became pretty arrogant and a cop would pull me over and I'd just look at my passenger and be like, we're not getting a ticket, watch, watch this. And uh, I wanna get a ticket. And so then I moved to Columbus and your cops just apparently here are not as friendly as Coffeeville cops or something because I did the exact same thing that I always did and they were like, tough, you're, you're gonna get two tickets in the matter of a week. And so I have learned my bank account has learned um, that I need to start going the speed limit. And so for the past four years, yes, I have gone without receiving a ticket or even being pulled over. And I feel like there's gonna be cops watching this at some point that are like, we're looking out for you, mister. Um, but it helps when I buy cars that don't break the speed limit as well, like little four bangers just and they don't go anywhere. Anyways, we're gonna be here all day. Um, but I have, changed in that I no longer speed when I know a cop is going to be around. Uh, <laughs> and so if I see a consistency of a cop being in this area, then it's like, okay, they usually park right around my house. So I'm going to go the 20 miles per hour that my street is, uh, even though they go faster, I'm going to go the speed limit because I'm a law abiding citizen when I can get in trouble for not being a law-abiding citizen. And I share that with you because would you say that I've really changed? Probably not. I've just got a little more deceptive actually. And I share that because when we look at the text that we're gonna be looking at today from perceptive standpoint, from, from perception, it appears that there was a change, but then it seems like that change didn't actually last. We're gonna be covering two passages this morning. We're gonna be in the book of Jonah and we're also gonna be in the book of Nahum because these both address the city of Nineveh where in Jonah you get this call to repentance and it appears that they repented. But then as you read the book of Nahum and the prophecy that God gave through Nahum, it appears that was not a lasting change. And so we're going through this series again of Jesus in the Old Testament as we are looking at these Old Testament passages and we're just seeing where is it that Jesus falls in line with this. And so what we're gonna be looking at today is how Jesus gives us that lasting change, which isn't one of adherence to uh, a form of standard, but it is one of true heart change. That's where lasting change 
comes from. So we're going to be in Jonah, we're going to be in Nahum, we're covering two, but they're both pretty short. So if you'll join me, we'll open up in a word of prayer, and then we will look at these two prophecies. So Father God, we just come before you, and God, just thank you for this body of believers that is encouraging, God, that is supporting and loving, and God, just that we come together, not just to adhere to a Sunday checklist, But God, we come to encourage one another, to love one another, to fulfill the one another's. We come to glorify you and to devote the first of our week to you. And God, I pray it not just be this time, but it be our week that we give to you. God, I pray that as you speak to us through your word this morning, may it be your word proclaimed and may it fall on hearts that are just ready to receive it and apply it to our lives. So we pray all of this in the name of Jesus, amen. So first off, we're gonna look at the book of Jonah and you have your outlines if you wanna fill them in. And the author obviously is Jonah. We're told that right away in reading the passage of Jonah, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, who is the son of Amittai. It dates, we have a specific point in scripture where we can see Jonah taking place. In 2 Kings chapter 14, during the reign of Jeroboam 2, God speaks through this very same Jonah. And so we know where this prophecy kind of falls in line in the reading of 2 Kings. And that's kind of how we're going through these prophecies because we're going to be jumping all over the place because they're not chronological in your Bible. And we're going to try and follow them to the best of our ability chronologically. And so Jonah falls in line with Jeroboam 2 in 2 Kings chapter 14. The context is that Jonah is prophesying during the same time as Hosea and Amos. Now, Hosea is prophesying to the people of Israel, the northern kingdom Israel, and he is telling them that y'all need to get right with God. And because you are not, there's going to be this nation called the Assyrians that are going to come in and take you off into captivity. And then Amos is prophesying the same thing. He is telling the nation of Israel that you all are going to be exiled to this land that is beyond Damascus, to Assyria, because Israel refuses to repent. And so we have Assyria is, or Assyria is located north of Damascus, as Amos tells us, and it's modern day Syria. So what happens is Jonah, in the context of the prophecy, is Jonah is told, go to them, go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria at this time, and tell them to repent. And as you know, the story of Jonah, he goes the complete opposite way. Because he does not want to go, because think of this, Hosea is prophesying, Israel, you're about to be exiled to the Assyrians. Amos is saying that Israel, you're going to be exiled beyond Damascus. And now God is saying, Jonah, go to that location and tell them, repent. And so Jonah is probably thinking, wait, you want me to go and tell the very people that are going to come and conquer us that they need to repent and get right with you? I'm going to look like a traitor. I'm going to look like I'm going against my own people because I know what Hosea and Amos are saying, so I'm not going. 
I'm going to flee the completely opposite direction. And you know, a storm comes, they throw him overboard, the fish captures him or bites him, swallows him, whatever you want to use. And then he spends three days in the fish, it spits him on shore, and then he goes to Nineveh. And he tells them what God says. And we see this quick repentance in the Ninevites. I mean, like the whole city and the king, they all throw on sackcloth and cover themselves in ashes and they repent. And a lot of scholars are like, how did that happen so fast? Well, what happened before Jonah came is Nineveh experienced two famines that came and hit the city. And then also they had a total solar eclipse that came and hit the city. And both of those things are, according to like these spiritual people, signs of divine anger. So they're already kind of being set the stage of the gods are not happy with us. And now Jonah is coming and saying, yeah, the God, the one true God is not happy with you. Repent or you will be wiped off the face of the earth. And so they repent. And so Jonah comes with this message of repentance, and it can kind of be broken down into four kind of topics or points that we see in the text of Jonah. The first one is we see that God cares not only for the Jews, but for Gentile nations as well, as Nineveh is not a Jewish nation. His plan has always been for the repentance of the world to come to know him. So we see that God cares for Gentile nations as well. We also see that God is sovereign over everything. Throughout the entire prophecy of Jonah, you are seeing God's intervention. As you see Jonah fleeing and so a storm comes, you see them throwing Jonah overboard, so a fish comes. You see Jonah prophesying and they repent and then God also intervenes as Jonah at the very end. It's kind of this weird ending as Jonah uh, prophesies and then he goes to watch fire and brimstone come on Nineveh. And so God raises up this plant to give Jonah shade. And then the next day a worm comes and eats it up and it like brings the scorching heat on him. And he is like, woe is me. Like, I wish I were dead right now. This is miserable. And God's like, you care more about this plant than you do about people that will face an eternal damnation. And so it kind of gives us a message there. God cares for them and God is also sovereign. And then we see that the response that the Gentiles were had is the response that Israel was supposed to have. That as Jonah went to this Gentile nation and said, repent, that is what Israel was supposed to be doing. Repenting, that's the message Hosea and Amos brought upon Israel. You guys need to repent. And yet they refused to. Instead, they behaved like Jonah. They disobeyed and they rebelled against God. And so we see Jonah's disobedience is a symbol of Israel's disobedience as well. It takes place in a couple locations. We don't know where he starts, but we know that he ends up going to Joppa, which is 35 miles west of Samaria, and it's on the coast. Because his plan was to go all the way to Tarshish, which is like modern day Spain, 2,500 miles in the opposite direction. And so he is trying to flee and flee as far as he can. When God tells him to go to Nineveh, which is located 550 miles northeast of Israel. And so he's going like all the way over here and he's called to go 
to Nineveh. And then he does. And we actually see Nineveh first mentioned in Genesis chapter 10, where we're told that Nimrod founded the city of Nineveh. And then the main theme that we have in Jonah is actually one that Jonah is very upset about. When Jonah is going on his rant against God, he actually says who God is, but he's like, God, this is actually one of your worst qualities in this situation. He says in Jonah 4.2, he says, God, I know that you are a gracious and merciful God. I know that you are full of steadfast love. I know you are slow to anger and you relent disaster. God, I wish you weren't that way. Even though we see God did that very thing to Jonah. Instead of just having the fish swallow him up and kill him, God gives Jonah grace, but now Jonah is upset that God is giving grace to not only the Jews, but he relents disaster also to the Gentiles if they will repent and turn to him. Jonah is actually only one of four prophets that Jesus likens to himself. You have Elijah, you have Elisha, you have Isaiah, and then you have him mentioning Jonah as he uses Jonah being in the belly of the fish as a sign of his going into the grave and then coming out again. So that's Jonah. Then we have Nahum, who comes like a century later, and its author is Nahum. That's about all we know about him. Nahum, he was the son of Elkosh. Nothing else is really known about him. His writing, though, is roughly 300 or 100 years later because he discusses in Nahum 3.8 the fall of Thebes, which we know happened in 663 B.C. And then he prophesies about the total destruction of Nineveh, which ended up happening in 612 B.C. So we know between where a Nahum is prophesying, but it's roughly a hundred years later. And again, the context of Nahum is Jonah came with this message of you need to repent Nineveh, and we see that they did, at least outwardly it appears, because within approximately 35 years, 722 BC, Nineveh is doing the exact same thing God warned them not to. Because what happened in 722 BC? Israel, the northern kingdom, goes into exile to the Assyrian empire, which Nineveh is the capital of. And so God comes and says, you need to repent. And then within 35 years, Nineveh and Assyria are like, we're going back to our wicked ways. We're going to go back and we're going to take Israel into exile. And so now, Within this time frame that Nahum is writing, he is saying judgment is coming upon Nineveh. And it is going to be total destruction. They will be wiped out. Nahum actually says Nineveh is the bloody city. And then he says that they have unceasing evil in them. I mean, we're like one generation removed from them repenting. And they are bloody and they are unceasing in evil. And so the audience at this time is Nahum is writing to the city of Nineveh, but also you could say he is writing to Judah because Israel's already been thrown into exile. You have Judah, the southern kingdom left, and they're even being attacked by Nineveh. And God is saying, don't worry, judgment is coming on those who are attacking you. And that's the message. The coming judgment of Nineveh, who was a dreaded enemy of many nations in that time. 
And so then the purpose that we see is the judgment of Nineveh. But it will bring comfort to Judah, knowing that Judah is being attacked. In 701 BC, the Assyrian army surrounded Jerusalem even and was getting ready to conquer it. And this is during the time of King Hezekiah, where he cries out to God because Sennacherib comes to Jerusalem and he speaks in the hearing of the entire city. And he says, who's going to save you from me? Is it going to be some God that seems to be distant? Do you not see what we did to all these other nations and their gods? Is your God truly going to save you? And so then Hezekiah, along with Isaiah, they cry out to God. And then that night, 185,000 Assyrians just wind up dead. They literally, in that night, the angel of the Lord comes and just is like, I'll, I'll show you. 185,000 of you wind up dead, so much so that Sennacherib returns to his home, and while he's in the temple of his God, he ends up getting murdered by his own son. God is sovereign, and God is going to have his way, and so Nahum is writing to Judah to announce the fall of Nineveh, and he is writing to comfort Judah with that assurance that God is the one that is in control. And so that's the two prophecies that we have that are kind of directed towards Nineveh. So what do we do with these prophecies, though? Well, I think they have a message for us today. That that one thing that God is telling us is that when we look at these prophecies, you see Jonah and the people repent. But then within roughly 35 years, they are right back to the way they were. That they are living in the same evil. And it appears that the repentance was not deep, that it was an adherence to religious norms, and it was like, okay, we don't want to get that speeding ticket, so we're going to abide by the law. We're going to do what we're supposed to do so that we don't have to suffer the consequences. But parents, you know what this is like. You tell your kid not to do something, they don't do it, so or they do it, and so then they get disciplined, and then they're like, I'll never do it again, and you think, all right, there's repentance. So then they get out of timeout, and they go right back to their sibling and just clock him a good one. And it's just like, where did that come from? And it's like, they said they were sorry. Oh, you didn't really mean it, though. And we kind of see that in Nineveh, that it doesn't appear to have stuck It makes me think of a parable that Jesus shares, the parable of the sower, where he says in Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 3, he says this parable saying, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up. There was fruit. It looked like growth was happening. Life was there. Since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And then Jesus goes on and actually tells us this is what this parable means. He says in verse 20, As for what was sown on rocky ground, This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Nineveh heard the word. Judgment is coming. We must change the way we are living. Let us repent. Let us put on the appearance of repentance. Throw on sackcloth. Cover your head in ashes. 
They show the repentance. They receive it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, so he endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arise on account of the word, immediately he falls away. And then the other is for what was sown among the thorns. This is the one who hears the word. They also grow up, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and they prove unfruitful. And so it appears that's the case with Nineveh, that they had this adherence to the religious norms, but there was nothing inside them that truly changed. And that's what Jesus is saying. I don't want your behavior. I want you. I want your heart. I want to change you from the inside out. Because I feel like that's a common misconception that religion, and especially American religion and Christianity has. What God wants for you is for you to adhere to moral standards. Jesus came so that he could have your moral betterment to make you a better person, to make you nicer. And what Jesus wants is initially, he wants your heart. He doesn't want you to come and just adhere to these religious standards. He wants you to come and surrender to him. It's like, uh, anybody ever drive on 400 all the way out to Wichita? It used to be 54. There's this town, it's called Leon, Kansas. And you know that when you drive out there that you start hitting the brakes because there's this cop that likes to camp out right there and he will give you zero tolerance. I have never been pulled over by him because I've seen enough other people. And so you go 75 miles an hour and then you come around this bend and you drop down to 45 really fast because you want him to see you following the law. And I feel like a lot of Christians are that way. I'm going to go 100 miles an hour living for myself, and then Sunday morning I'm going to throw on the best clothes. I'm going to put on my religious talk. I'm going to act right. And then once I get out of those city limits of the church, I am going to cuss. I'm going to drink. I'm going to do all this, live in the way of the world. Because that's, Jesus just wants my moral betterment for an hour of the week. And it's like, no, Jesus wants so much more than that. He wants your heart. He wants your lives. I, I'll be so bold to say he doesn't care about how you live your life if it's not lived with a heart change. It's like that kid that is, uh, I heard it said one time, he's standing in the passenger seat. He's supposed to be in a booster seat, but he's just standing there. And his parent is saying, you need to buckle up. And he's like, no, I'm not gonna. Well, you need to buckle up. No, I'm not gonna. And so finally, discipline happens. They sit down and they buckle up and they're like, well, I might be sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. It's like I'm adhering to what you want me to do, but my heart is far from you. And that's actually what Jesus has to say about the Pharisees. That he had this argument with this group of people, this continuing argument with this people that thought we are the morally mature, spiritually better people. And so therefore, because we behave this way, we are right with God. He loves us because outwardly we are beautiful. We adhere not only to what God said, but we actually are better than what he said. We're going to give more laws on top of it. And Jesus has some 
harsh words for them. In Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse 27, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. He says, you are like whitewashed tombs. Outwardly, yeah, you're doing everything. You're morally better than everybody else. But within, you are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. And he says, you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You're doing the morally better thing, but your heart is far from me. Jesus quotes Isaiah in, Matthew chapter, in Mark chapter 7, verse 6, when he says, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written. This people, they honor me with their lips. They come here and they give me lip service, but their hearts are far from me. Jesus is not after making you live a better life. He's after your heart. And I can already tell some of you are like, whoa, whoa, whoa hold on here. We'll get to that in a minute. But Jesus, first and foremost, wants your heart. And it appears that Nineveh did not give him their heart because within 35 years, they're going back after the things that they were not supposed to go after. It, it makes me think of people who I've encountered a lot and it's like, Everything has just hit the fan. And it's like, oh man, like I need things to get better. So I'm going to start going to church and I'm going to start reading the Bible and I'm going to start, you know, giving. And then everything starts to work out. And they're like, ah, now I don't have to gather so much. I don't have to, you know, read so much. I don't, I'm, I'm going to let the, the concerns of this world grow up alongside me and choke out my desire for the word because there was no true heart change which is what jesus is after he wants your heart god's not after your behavior he's after your heart and here's for all of you that were like whoa hold on we need to act right yes when god gets your heart then he'll get your behavior he's after your heart first because after he gets your heart and changes it he gets everything else with it he says you'll know them by their fruit. Their fruits will make them known. You see, this is what God promised in the new covenant. Because the old covenant is you need to keep the law, and the law just showed us we were unable to do that. And so then he tells us this new covenant is going to come in, and it's going to change you from the inside out. Because he says in Romans chapter 7, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So the law came to show us that if you want to be good enough to earn God's favor, it's never going to happen. Because what the law did is showed us just how truly depraved we are. I mean, all my rebels out there, you'll understand this. You walk along a sign and it says, do not touch wet paint. And you're like, yeah, is it really? I've never wanted to touch a wall as much as I want to touch that wall right now. Or please stay off my grass. And it's like, who made you boss? I'm going to step on your grass. Whenever we see what the law is, it's like, oh, I have never wanted to break the law so much in my life until you told me I can't. Paul goes on to say, I didn't know what coveting was until the law told me thou shalt not covet. And now all of a sudden I realize I'm coveting everything. The law came to arouse that sinful nature in us to show us our sinful nature. And so Paul goes on to say, wait a minute, so is the law bad? No, 
it revealed the bad inside of us. So what God is saying is we need something deeper than the law. Because the law can change your outward, but it doesn't touch your heart. You need something far greater than that to come in, a new covenant that will change you from within. And that's what God promises in the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31. He says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. This is the new covenant ushered in the blood of Jesus. He says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And then Ezekiel 36, he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make spiritually dead people alive. He came to take hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh. Because when he has your heart, he has you. He has all of you. He came to give you that connection, that life with God forever. And so I want to close with another misconception that this might bring because we, we swing on pendulums as people. And there for a while, we were on this truth pendulum, and it was all law, all law. You have to live this way. It's all about this. And you're, you're like taking the Bible and pounding people over the head with it. And, and that kind of became repulsive because we never talked about grace. So then we swung entirely the other way, and it was all grace, all grace, all grace, where it is you can do whatever the heck you want to do, and as long as you say, I believe in Jesus, and you got wet in that water, you're good. Go ahead and keep living that way. It doesn't matter. And we've swung too far the other way. In John chapter 8, whenever Jesus is confronted with the woman caught in adultery, and he's already sent off everybody that has the inability to condemn her because he says, let him whoever is without sin throw the first stone and they all drop the stones and walk off and he is left alone with her. He looks at her and he says, woman, where are they who condemn you? And she says, there's no one, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you. He's leading with that grace. You are not condemned by your past. But he does not say, now go ahead back to the man that you were just with. Keep living in that way. Keep making that money by selling your body. Instead, he says, go and sin no more. But he needed her heart first. And once he was able to show her grace that you know, I love you how you are. But then he says, don't stay that way. Do not continue to live in this life. I've used this analogy before, probably beating a dead horse here. But when I got married, when I started dating Heather, it was like 2017, we started talking. I cut off all connections with former females. I changed the way that I communicated with current females where it was like, all right, there's going to be a group thread now so that she knows, hey, you're mine. I'm, I'm, I'm seeking after you. There was a change of my heart. I'm not going back to ex-girlfriends. I'm not hitting up Tinder or Grindr or ChristiansOnly.com or whatever they are these days. I'm not looking for that. I'm looking to live with my wife and be faithful to her. 
Yet so many Christians are saying, you know what, I, I want God and I want my exes. I want to live for Jesus, but I want to kind of keep sleeping around over here. I, I want the best of both worlds. And it's like, no, God is saying, if, if I have your heart, I have all of you. You're not going to go back to that other way. Ephesians chapter 4 talks about that. He says you put off your old way and you put on the new way. So therefore, don't let corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Do not uh, grieve the Holy Spirit. Do not steal anymore. Do not live the way you used to live. But instead, live the way that you have now been called. God wants your heart. And he says that when he has your heart, you will live for him. First John says this, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and we love one another just as he commanded. Whoever keeps his commandment abides in God and God in him. How do I know if God has my heart? Am I keeping his commandments? But what's the purpose behind it? Am I going the speed limit so I don't get pulled over? Or am I being faithful to my wife because I love her and I want to stay with her and I want that relationship to grow? He says, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. And then he tells us in Ezekiel, he already said, I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. His spirit will lead us to be obedient to him, but we must surrender our heart to him. Again, God wants your heart, and when he gets your heart, he'll get everything else. But he can have your behavior and not have your heart. Every parent understands that. They can say, well, I'm sorry, can I go have my donut now? You're not really sorry. You just don't want to get in trouble anymore. What we want is true repentance. To love God is to obey his commandments and live for him. And so what God is calling for you to do today is recognize who he is, that he is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords and you surrender everything over to him. Surrender it completely to him. You repent of your ways. You say, no longer am I gonna walk with the past relationships that I had. I'm gonna focus on you. I'm gonna live for you and I'm gonna let you enter in and change me the way only you can. Because I've tried changing myself and I always go back to the old way that I'm living. Instead, what I need is what God says in Ezekiel. I need God to give me that new heart, the new spirit that he will put within me. I will, he will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And he will put his spirit within you and he will cause you to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. How do you start with that? First off, it, it comes from realizing there's nothing good within me. I can do nothing good on my own. You need to realize it's the antithesis of pride. You need to be humble. God, I'm a sinner and I'm deserving of eternal separation from you. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. 
And so, God, I need you to come into my heart. I repent of my former way of life, which means I'm going to change the way that I think about things. Ephesians 4 tells us this. Romans 12 tells us this. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Change the way that you think about those things. God, I hate those things. And I turn to you. And then we walk in the assurance of salvation that we have, knowing it's not based on what I did, it's based on what Christ did, and he does the work inside of me. And so all you're called to do is surrender, to say, God, I'm not fighting you on this anymore. I'm not walking in my ways, for Proverbs tells us the ways of a man leads to death. And so instead, God, I'm gonna live according to your ways. I ask for your spirit to come inside of me and transform me. And then you just live for him as his spirit guides you. So Father God, I pray that upon your people here who are hearing your word, God, I pray that if there be any of us that have not surrendered over to you, and God, I just ask that we take this time to truly check our hearts because, excuse me, God, we know if we're not truly living for you. But God, we're also told that the heart is deceitful above all else. And so I ask that you convict our hearts by sending your spirit, as you said, he will come to convict the world of sin. And so God, I just pray that you convict us. Show us where we are just trying to adhere to some moral regulation so that we can kind of stick it to you. And God, change our hearts so that we live for you. God, I pray that you be the one that does the work and just help us to respond however it is that you're calling us. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray this. Amen.